Good morning. Amen. Mama Childers, petticoats, pew walking and praying. I don't know what to do with you, but anyway, I did check to see if the pews were screwed down. So if we did decide to try that someday, someday, not today, someday. Turn your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 17. The Childers family is a blessing to us, to our church. You had a tremendous weekend with who you brought in, but you are as good as anybody you brought. And I thank you for your ministry. I thank you for how you serve and your willingness. And so open your Bibles again to 1 Kings chapter 17. All my life I've heard sermons on prayer, especially more as an adult. I've heard people and preachers talk about praying, just like Mama Childress was talking about. We've got to learn how to pray. We've got to be a praying people. And you can read the scripture. It says we're to pray without ceasing. You can read the scripture. It says we have not because we ask not. And sometimes we don't have because we ask amiss because we want to consume it upon our own lust. Prayer is one of those challenges that God has laid before us. But prayer is the key to your spiritual life, to your relationship and walking with God as you can uh, take it with the word of God and you unite them together, you need to understand you're desperate, I'm desperate to learn how to pray. Now hear me, I have written books on prayer. I'm reading a book on prayer right now. I've led conferences on prayer. But that's one of the biggest challenges of my life is saying, God, teach me to pray. But I can take you to a living room floor in an apartment when Char and I were in seminary where I got on my face before the Father and I poured my soul out saying, God, I need to understand this. God, I need to know what it means. God, show me how to pray. And he has been doing that and he continues to do that. But I by no means have arrived in my prayer life because there's so much to it and, and I feel so inadequate sometimes. Do you? Do you feel like you've got it all and you've got it going on in your prayer life? Because if you do, I'll let you come up here and speak because you should be. But, but see, see, prayer is crucial to your spiritual life. Prayer is crucial to your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just praying. It's praying based on what the Word of God says. It's praying Scripture back to God. Every religion in the world prays. But you as a child of God, you've got access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You've got an audience with the very maker of all that is the lover of your soul. That's good news. So one thing God has showed me over the years was in verse chapter 17, verse 17 of this book of First Kings with the story of Elijah. And it says, And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom, carried him into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed and he cried unto the Lord you ever been that place in your life where you cry unto the Lord where you cry out to God to intercede where you cry out to the father to move he cried unto the Lord and and and, and lo Lord my God hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son. And he stretched himself upon the child three times. And he cried unto the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. And the soul of the child came into him again. And he revived. 
And Elijah took the child, brought him down to the chamber, out of the chamber into the house, and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. You remember Elijah, don't you? He's that prophet of God that comes out of nowhere and he shows up on the pages of Scripture. You're actually introduced to him back in verse 1 of chapter 17. It says, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, he's a Tishbite from Gilead. You know what that means, a Tishbite from Gilead? He came from the mountains. He is a hillbilly. I like hillbillies. I art one of them. He came from the mountains, and when he came from the mountains, God had called him, raised him up, put a word of truth in his mouth, empowered him to go before King Elijah or, 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 or King Ahab. And here he goes into this wicked King Ahab's palace. He is uninvited, he is unarmed, and he is not even wanted there. But he goes into the king's palace and he proclaims the word of God and he says, It's not going to rain for three years. It ain't going to rain no more, no more. It ain't going to rain no more until I tell you it's going to rain. And he leaves knowing he has told the truth. The first message that this preacher got to preach was a message of judgment. That'll bless your heart. This first message this messenger got to preach was a message calling the very people he's preaching to that judgment of God is coming. It looks like revival would be on the edge because here the man of God sent by God himself proclaims the word of God to a people backslidden on God and he proclaims this message of judgment and then God says no more preaching. Go to the brook, Careth. Now get the picture. Here is a man of God called to preach the word of God, sent to a place, the brook called Careth, where there's nobody there to preach to. Do you know what Careth means? The name of that brook? It means a cutting. You actually translate it more literally. It means a, a gouging out or a cutting out of a gorge. God sent his man to a place where his life got further cut back from the things that were not essential and necessary in his life. How about you? Have you found yourself any time lately where God has put you in a situation where he says, you really don't need that, so let's just cut it away. And we might want to hang on to it. A little bit longer. And we might try to cling to it. But God says, no, you don't need to. I'm going to separate that from you. I'm going to cut it away from your life. And for three years, Elijah, by the brook Kareth, he sit there and let a dirty bird, an unclean raven, feed him. Because that's what God said. And that will mess your theology up one more time. And here it is. He's there being cut back, getting equipped, getting prepared to go forth and do God's will. And all of a sudden, here the man of God, when the brook dries up, he's still there. God gives him another word. Isn't that wonderful? But you better stay put till you get the next word. 
And it better be a word from God, not a word from your fan club and not a word from your friends and not a word from your supporters. You better know how to hear God speak and yield to that word that he gives you. And when the word of God came, it says, Elijah, get up and go to Zarephath. And there I have appointed a widow to sustain thee. Do you know how you get from Kareth to Zarephath, modern day Lebanon? When you go from Kareth to Lebanon, what is happening is you are going back through the area of Samaria. You're going back through Ahab's homeland. You're going back through Ahab's kingdom. You're going back to the place where the king who's looking to put you to death lives. And here it was. God said, go back. And God hit him in broad daylight, I believe, because he goes right down through Samaria on his way to Lebanon, to, to, to Zarephath. And Ahab's looking for him. Obadiah's looking for him. But nobody found him. And here he is, bigger than Pete, walking right through Samaria. And surely, I'm thinking it crossed his mind, as I pass through here, now's the time to preach, God. Now's the time revival's ripe. It's been three years of famine. It's been three years of difficulty. Surely, they're going to be willing to listen to you now. And God said, no, you keep quiet. You keep right on walking until you get to the widow of Zarephath. And here's what I believe is going on in Elijah's mind. She must be some widow with means. And so what's he do when he gets there? He finds this widow And the Bible says she is gathering sticks and she's got a little bit of oil and she's got a little bit of meal and she's going to light a fire and she's going to mix this all together and she's going to eat this and her son's going to eat this and they're going to die. She's not a widow of means. She's a widow in need. She's a widow in want. And Elijah is saying, God, she's going to sustain me. Sometimes the will of God, the word of God doesn't seem as clear as it would like to be for us. And we don't always understand it, but we better always abide in it. And so when God spoke to Elijah and he goes to this widow's house, it's important because here it is. God is going to show how he meets the needs of a needy man by his power. Do you realize what it says in the text? It says she had gathered two sticks. Read it for yourself. It says she had gathered two sticks. She did not gather three. She did not gather four. She did not gather five or six. And it's important that words are important in the scripture because you need to understand it is a word translation, not a thought translation. But you've got to understand, no, it says there are two sticks that she was gathering. And here's what the point is. God meets the need of man where two sticks cross. You understand what I'm saying because you just missed a good spot to say amen because God meets the need of man and he feeds the soul of man where two sticks cross on Calvary's tree because on Calvary's tree, Jesus Christ, he bled and died and he shed his life's blood for you at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my soul rolled away. It was there by faith that I found new life. And now I am happy all the day at the place where two sticks meet, at the place where the cross comes together. God says, I'm going to meet your need. And you stay put. And you've got to learn, as I've got to learn, to stay put where God leads us even into situations that we do not understand. And so here it is. God brings Elijah into this widow's life, and she is there to sustain him. What happens is he gives an ongoing miracle. Now listen to me. Elijah looked at this widow lady. And the challenge was, as you sustain me, the man of God, God will sustain you. When you sustain the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God sustains you. You hear me? 
So here's this widow lady in the midst of a three-year famine. All she's got left is a little bit of oil, is a little bit of meal. And she's got two sticks. She's going to make a fire, eat it and die. And her son's going to eat and he's going to die. And all of a sudden, the man of God shows up and there is provision in her life. And she's obedient to the word of God. This was not a one-time miracle. God did not give her vats of oil. And God did not give her cupboards full of meal. God gave her just enough. Every day when she went to that pot, the oil kept pouring. Every day she went to that flower bin, the meal came out. Every day she had a need. God asked, what do you want to have? We like those big one-time exciting miracles. But God says, I'm going to sustain you all through life. I'm going to give it to you as you go. As you trust in me, I will make provision for it. It's an ongoing miracle. And that's greater than a big-time miracle. But then her son died. Everything's going good, but now her son, her precious child, he dies. And this is where the story gets a little bit hard. Because look how this lady responds to death. How are you supposed to respond to death? Grief. You understand God has given us the ability to know pain. God has given us the ability to grieve. And, and, and when we experience death, grief should be the natural reaction that we are having because the pain of the relationship, the pain of the hurt is so intense in our life. We know how to grieve. But this lady's not grieving. Look what it says. Verse 18. And she said unto Elijah... What am I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Can you hear the sarcasm in her voice? Art thou coming to me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? Can you hear the blame and the accusation in her voice? See, see, she has experienced death. She's experienced separation. But instead of grieving, she's got an angry heart. How did that happen? How do I know that? Because of what the text says. See, 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 she looked at the man of God and said, Is this what I get paid for nourishing you, for sustaining you in the midst of this family? Is this how you repay me to kill my son? Elijah didn't take her boy's life. But that's what she said, is it not? But look what else she said. And it says, And to call my sin to Remember, what sin is she talking about? There's nothing in Scripture that shows us she has committed some great, big, terrible sin. So what sin is she talking about? So see, this is the way life is, guys. When you do not get your sin under the blood of Jesus Christ, and you don't get the forgiveness and the cleansing of Almighty God inside of your life, you get filled with guilt because of some past sin, because of some past wrong act. You get filled with guilt, and that guilt consumes you. And you go down to the psychiatrist, and you get on the couch, and he tells you, well, don't, don't, don't take it too hard. Just, just forget it. That's the best the world can do. Tell you to forget it. How's that working for you? Because as soon as there's a bump in the road, that file cabinet pops back open. That thing you have buried away back there, it pops back open, does it? And it comes right back to your face. I talked to a man just a, while, a week or so ago. He's 70-some years old. He instantly went back to when he was 19. Instantly. I didn't even say nothing. He starts telling me his blame of when I was 19. 
See, see, when, when difficulties come in life, all that we've not put under the blood of Christ, it has a way of coming back up. You see, see, the, the, the guilt that, that she was facing, that's the, that's the, the fruit of, what the root was, the sin wasn't under the blood. And you can cut the fruit off all day long. But until you get to the root, it's not going to matter. Until you understand the forgiveness that only God can give. When you understand God has forgiven me and God has cleansed me and God has washed me. God has taken my sin away and cast it as far as the east is from the west. When you get that under the blood of Jesus Christ, he takes the guilt away. See, see, see. And, and we struggle with guilt because we've not got the root under the blood. We've mouthed the phrase, but we've not agonized on our face. We've mouthed something to God, but we've not gone to make restitution to the brother that we offended. We've mouthed something to the Father and said, oh, forgive me, but we've not even got specific about the heinousness of what our sin was. And until we do, we can rationalize it, we can justify it, we can excuse it, we can hide it. But you let something happen in your life, the file door pops open and out it pops. And we're just like this woman said, you're calling my sin to remembrance. Preachers get blamed for a lot of stuff. Maybe rightly so. But until you get your sin under the blood, it constantly comes back at you with guilt. But when you get it under the blood and it is forgiven, man, there's a peace that passes all understanding that can come into your life. And yes, we have bad things in our past that we're not proud of, but it's under the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the sermon, but it's the part to get there. Because you see, in the process of getting to the sermon, you've got to deal with how we got there. You see, Elijah is never pictured as a very compassionate man throughout the scriptures. Have you read the stories of Elijah? And so, so, so when this lady came and said, is that the pay I get for sustaining you in the midst of a famine? Is this how you repay me? He could have said, repay you. Lady, let me tell you something. When I showed up here, you were planning on dying. You were seeking death. You had two sticks, some oil, and some meal. And you were going to eat the bread that you made and feed it to your son. And then you were going to die. And no, you have not sustained me. I have sustained you because of my presence in your midst. And if you want me to leave, I'll leave. But he didn't say that. He could have... I'm sure that's what flesh wants to do. But he said, give me your son. Right? And it looks as if she hesitated because he took and he got her and took her from her bosom away from her mo his mother. He said, give me your son. And he takes the, the little boy up into the upper room and he lays him out on the bed and See, see, here's the first principle God showed me if you want to be an intercessor and you want to understand how to pray and how to intercede. And see, intercession is not praying for me and my four no more. 
And you better pray my voice hangs on or maybe you're praying it won't. I don't know. But it's getting squeaky. The first part of being an intercessor is the part of identification. Where you've got to identify with other people. And that goes beyond just praying for your family and friends. That goes where you start getting a burden for lost people who don't know Jesus Christ. And and see, this is what I find in churches, especially if you've been Christian very long. You say, I don't know any lost people. Then get involved. So you do get to know lost people. That's another principle. Involvement. Get involved. Ask people questions. You see, right now, let me ask you to think of somebody who's lost. Just give a quick thought. Somebody you know is lost. Now think, where are they going to spend eternity? Where are they going to spend eternity? They're lost. In hell. Tell me what you know about hell. The fire burns extremely hot, but you never die. You're never consumed. There's a worm there that that constantly eats you from the inside out, but you you never die. You're never consumed. You're in a place where there's agonizing and there's squalling and there's crying and there's begging and there's pleading. I, I, was in a, I was in a hotel fire when I was in high school in Hazard, Kentucky and the whole hotel was black with smoke and, and they were getting everybody out and I remember getting out and I'm standing there looking at the blackness and there's somebody up in the second floor screaming, help me, help me, I can't find the door, I can't get out. Now he found his way out but that was the most hopeless part Complete, utter darkness, squalling in hell. That's what my family, my friends, your family, your friends, these co-workers, that's where they'll spend eternity. But if they get saved, where are they going? Glory, glory, hallelujah. So, 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 So you need to think they're lost, so I need to intercede on behalf of them I need to pray on behalf of them that God would would interrupt their life that God would stop them in their tracks that God would put somebody there to witness that God would disturb them with dreams that God would make the rest restless so 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 that he he, he has them in a point where where they're willing to cry out for God but you've got to get involved in their life and see Elijah could have said this ain't my problem But he didn't. He said, give me your son. He initiated involvement. You have to initiate involvement. And he took him upstairs. He he laid him on on a bed. And what's it say? He got down on his knees and he prayed, God, touch him. No, that ain't what it says. Did it say he stood in the doorway and raised his hands out to him and said, God, raise him up? Nope. Did it say that he laid prostrate on the floor right beside the body? What's it say? It says he got belly to belly with this little boy. That is identifying with this child, is it not? That is connecting with this child. And he cried out to God, God, put the soul of this boy back inside himself. And he got up and he stands away and he looks and it doesn't happen. And he gets back down belly to belly, face to face, hand to hand. And he begs God, God. See, we need to think about our lost friends who are going to hell. We need to see our family and our co-workers, schoolmates, and realize they don't know Jesus. They're going to hell. And we need to learn how to pray 
and agonize and cry out to God. And so, 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 so here he is. He's, he, he is, he's identified with, with this boy. He, he's involved with this boy. And, and then you see the other principle, the third principle, is that of inquiry. He, he says, Lord God, you've brought evil upon this widow. He's saying, God, why? Now, I know many of us were instructed, you don't ask God why. There's nothing wrong with asking God why. But you don't ask him accusatively. You ask him with a genuine questioning heart. I I brought this up in in our class on Thursday night. And I said, why is it God muted Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when he questioned God? But Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she questioned God, he didn't mute her. And, And Ella said, can't mute a woman. I wasn't expecting that answer. Got it. But see, see, it's all with how you ask. And he's asking for information so he knows how to pray. And that's what you have to understand to ask God why for information so you can pray intelligently. Because if you're not praying intelligently, you're missing the dot connection. And if you're not praying intelligently, you don't know that you're praying in the will of God. It's easy to pray for lost people. According to 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, God would not have any should perish. So we know that we can pray for the salvation of a lost soul because we know that's God's will. But when it comes to praying for other believers, that's when it gets a little bit harder. Because when I pray for myself, when I'm having my prayer time, I have a vertical relationship with God. I say my prayer, my prayer goes up vertically to God. And when I'm walking in the Spirit, I'm abiding in Christ. I'm living in harmony with the Holy God. He answers my prayer. I go pray up, prayer answer comes down. Why? Because it's vertical. But I've got to start praying for Randy. See, now it's triangular. Right? Me to Randy, God to me. And so if I'm going to pray for Randy, I have got to be able to say, God, what is your will for Randy? Why is he going through this situation? How am I to pray? That making sense? See, because now there's a horizontal aspect to my praying. And see... This can be right with me and Randy, and this can be right between me and God. But Randy, if it ain't right up here, I don't know how to pray correctly. And if God is trying to teach Randy something in the process, see, I don't want to try to get in between Randy and God. Does that make sense? Because that could be painful for me. So so when somebody says, pray for this person to be healed, pray for this thing to open up, pray for this. And I'm saying, okay, I will when I understand what is God trying to say to you in this process. I, I battle with kidney stones. I found out a lot of people battle with kidney stones. God has never healed me of kidney. I've had 20. I'm not going to get as detailed as cut from side to side. I've already done that, all right? We'll leave that with you. And I've had people lay hands on me, pray for me, anoint me. I've still got stones. Hmm. You know what I've learned? It's when that stone starts rolling. I know how to pray, crying out. 
So in the process of the pain and the discomfort, God has taught me a level of prayer intensity. This making sense? And so, 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 so when, when you're dealing with a situation, maybe you're dealing with a prodigal, what's God trying to speak to them? So, so see, I have to say, God, give me wisdom. But when I know the will of God, I pray in a straight line. Even though it's a triangle now, but I know the will of God, I'm praying in a straight line. And I pray that way until God detours or God says stop. I don't quit. I pray in a straight line. See, and this leads to the last principle. And that's the principle and it's a fancy word called importunity. Importunity. I made about 14 syllables out of a three-syllable word. That is you keep on praying. You don't stop. You keep on. See, he prayed the first time he got up, the boy's not got his soul back in him. He got back down, prayed the second time, got up, the boy's not got his soul back in him. He got down the third time, got up, and he's breathing. But if he had not got his soul back in him, what do you think he would have done? He would have got back down on him the fourth time and the fifth time and the sixth time. Why? Because God didn't say stop. When did God tell you to stop? No. Keep on praying. And so, 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 so to understand just a few aspects of intercessory praying, you have to understand involvement with the lives of other people. You have to understand inquiring unto God. You have to understand the point of identification with them and the point of importunity. You keep on praying. You don't stop. Char and I served in West Virginia church for eight years as a, as a church plant had another preacher from West Virginia tell me, he said, he said, I grew up in West Virginia, and he said, uh, went to this church, and said, my daddy was the pastor, and he said, me and my brother sat on the front row, and he said, there's a little lady there named Clara Chapman. Chappie, they called her. And Chappie was married to a man named Harvey, and Harvey was a wicked, vile, sinner man. Harvey, everybody was scared of Harvey, and it Chappie loved the Lord with all her heart and she was faithful to the church every time the doors were open. And he said, we'd be at church and, and it would come testimony time. And, and he said, all of a sudden, Chappie would stand up and say, I'm going to praise the Lord for, for saving my soul and I thank you that I'm under the blood. And, and he, said, he said, many times I'd let Chappie get up and she had a black eye where, where, where Harvey had hit her or she had scuffs on her body or scratches on her body where Harvey had abused her. But, but during testimony time, she would be the first one up to say, I just want to praise the Lord for saving my soul. And, and I've been praying and thinking that he's given me a word of Scripture and I want to share this word of Scripture with him. And she would quote a verse of scripture to him and then she'd say I want you to pray for a Harvey because oh it's going to be wonderful when Harvey gets saved it's going to be glorious when Harvey gets saved when, when Harvey gets saved I'm not going to have to pray over by the stove anymore before I eat my meal because when Harvey gets saved we can sit down at the table and Harvey will lead us in prayer oh it's going to be wonderful when Harvey gets saved he said I'm not going to have to hide to read my Bible Harvey's going to open up the Bible and we'll read it together it's going to be wonderful when Harvey gets saved when Harvey gets saved I, I'll not have to walk to church and let him run me off the road and knock me in a ditch as he's going down to the bar. When Harvey gets he'll bring me to church. We'll come together. It's going to be wonderful. For 20 years, he said, I heard this testimony. 
He said, me and my brother would sit on the front pew and we would parrot everything she said because we had heard it so long. He said, I moved away, pastor, and he said, went back for a revival meeting. He said, somebody passed away, and he said, I thought I'm going to run by the funeral home. And he said, I went to the funeral home there in West Virginia. He said, I paid my respects. And he said, I looked back in the corner. He said, I thought, there's that little old dried up chappy. He said, he said, she looked like cold gravy. Huh? Wrinkles everywhere. He said, I went back there and I said, Clara Chapman, is that you? And she said, sure it is. Who are you? And he told her, who, yeah, I remember you. Good to see you, young man. Keep on preaching the gospel. He said, I started to leave and I said, Clara, Harvey ever get saved? Well, he sure did. He said, I said, Clara, what was it like when Harvey got saved? And he said, when she'd testify, she'd stand up and she'd grab hold of that pew in front of her and she'd start rocking and telling how good it's going to be when Harvey got saved. He said, she didn't have a pew to grab hold of. She was on a walker and she leaned up on that walker and she started, woo, rocking back and forth. Oh, it was wonderful when Harvey got saved. When Harvey got saved, see, see, when Harvey got saved, he started reading the Bible and we'd put on our bedclothes at night and he'd sit down and he'd open that Bible and, and we'd read it together and then we'd pray and, and then we'd go to bed. When Harvey got say he, he would sit down at the table and we would take hold of each other's hand and he would say grace over the meals I wasn't having to hide over here by the when Harvey got saved it was one when Harvey got saved he was taking me to church in fact he was ready before me and he'd be blowing the horn saying come on Chappie we're going to be late come on Chappie we can't be late for church and he said we'd get to church and when Harvey he jumped up to testify before I could it was glorious when Harvey got saved She said, how did he die? Was it sick very long? She said, no. She said, we were sitting there in the living room ready for bed. He had that big old Bible open and we had been reading. And he started praying. And he started praying and he quit. So I raised my head no, he ain't moving. So I went over and I touched him and he was dead. And then she said, Harvey started his prayer down here. Woo! And he finished it on the other side in glory. Yeah! He said, I'm crying. She's rocking on that walker back and forth. He said, Miss Claire, Miss Chappie, how long did you pray for Harvey? Just 32 years. All right, college graduate. Been to seminary. This lady who's got a third grade reading level knows more about intercessory prayer than I do. How about you? See, do you want to enroll in the School of Intercessory Prayer. There's plenty of spaces. But, but, but you're going to be doing a lot of work by yourself. But it's worth it. It's worth it. 
See, y'all never heard of Claire Chapman. But when she walked through the gates of glory, everybody in heaven knew who she was. All the angels said, She's here! She's here! Father God, we bow before you this morning. God, raise up men and women in this church to be intercessors, God. Who God will keep at the task for 32 years or longer. God, when I go to glory, I, I, Lord, I want the angels to know I'm there. I, I don't mean that in a prideful way, God, but, but God, I want to show up because I'm ready. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. Won't you come this morning and somebody can show you with an open Bible what it means to be saved. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just cold and you're indifferent. You, you tell me you're saved, but, but there's something amiss in your heart because maybe, maybe you got that, like that widow woman, that undealt with sin and you're blaming the preacher, you're blaming whoever but God is saying you need to get it under the blood well right now you're given a chance won't you get it under the blood the Bible says he who confesses his sin and forsakes it Father, speak to hearts.